Let's turn in our scriptures this evening to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Colossians and chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 1 through to verse 23. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to pass, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blamely and as above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. May God add his own blessing to that reading of his own precious word. Well, our thoughts this evening are going to be focused around verses 12 to 14 that we read together. Paul writes this, giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And uh, it will become obvious later in the study where that fits into what we've been discussing. As you know, over the past few months, we've been spent time considering what has been described as the long war against God. It was, I hope, a consideration of Satan's continuing struggle to discredit, to undo and to bring down the work of Almighty God and also to elevate himself to a position of equal if not greater glory than God himself. We began, if you remember, last August uh, with a consideration of the passage in Isaiah chapter 14 which gives us an insight, doesn't it, into the, if you like, the origins of this long war. It tells how Satan himself was cast from heaven because of his desire, as it says in there in Isaiah, to exhort my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Uh, these were the thoughts that were uh, caused of the accusation against him and were the cause of his being cast down from heaven. And then we continued after a couple of months, uh, we finished the series in Abraham, and again in January of this year we resumed our studies and uh, we resumed with a study of the case of the roaring lion. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 we're told that your enemy the devil is like a roaring lion seeking to devour who he may. And we attempted there to understand and be aware of both the nature and the danger of our adversary. And then in the next study we considered the subtle ways that Satan uses to tempt us into sin and into sinful ways. We took some time, didn't we, to look at the situations that Thomas Brooks in his book uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, we took some time to consider again those ways which Satan will and also we looked at that verse in James that uh, tells us that yielding to Satan's temptations ultimately brings forth death. The next study examined the truth that sin is universal, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And during the course of that study we considered the conversation that God had with Cain after he had murdered his brother. God says to, Abel, uh, to Cain, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. And the following exhortation which said, you should rule over it. Also during the course of that one particular study, we looked at some of the techniques that Satan uses to bring people into sin. I think perhaps all of us will recognise at some point some of these problems. We thought about his desire to put temptations in our way, that we might become, as it were, to be hooked on a particular sin. 
He tempts us by making sin look attractive and virtuous in some ways. We talk about a white lie, don't we? But of course, lies are lies. But this is just one example of the way Satan would uh, tempt and deceive us into sin. Also by making sin look less evil than it really is. I think we commented at the time that really in the world today particularly and even in churches we can ask the question where is the sinfulness of sin gone? Where is the conception that it is against God? That it violates God's laws? It brings us into enmity against God. And then by showing that even the best of men sin, we're often tempted to think, well, David sinned and Abraham sinned and this one and that one, they all sinned. And so it tries to reduce sin to the fact that it's not that serious because everyone does it. And then also, and this is a very subtle one, he uses the thought that repentance is easy. We can come to God and repent of our sins at any time and we treat, in a sense, repentance in far too casual a manner. We should not necessarily be over-worried by our sin. We can always come and we can always repent. And of course that's true. But of course we come into repentance in a sense of humility in a sense of shame, uh, asking that we might be forgiven. And then in the final study, we looked at the issue of the sin that so easily besets us, as mentioned in Hebrews 12.1. And we considered, and again, hopefully we answered the questions, why is it that sin does so easily beset us? And how do we recognise and ultimately overcome that sin that so easily besets us. In all of these studies, I hope that we can see from what we have studied what a formidable, what a dangerous enemy Satan is. The Saviour himself in Luke chapter 11 records the words of the Lord on the subject of the power of Satan. And it's, it's a thought that should live with us. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armour in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. So then, as much as we have studied, haven't we, and informed ourselves of the dangers of Satan, and the power of sin and the power of temptation, both of which bring a sort of negative aspect to our lives. It's not pleasant for us to look back on our sin and the times that uh, we fall to the temptation when Satan overcomes us. These are, in a sense, negative situations. The scripture tells us, doesn't it, that the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. But there is, and this is our subject this evening, there is a positive truth uh, that Jesus Christ is the stronger one. He has come and he has overcome Satan and he has won such a great victory 
on our behalf. So perhaps in this conclusion of this short series, let us focus now on that great and mighty victory and the many, many blessings that it brings to God's people. Now one of the most, as far as I'm concerned anyway, one of the most descriptive passages of scripture which again describes both the victory and the blessings is found not in Colossians chapter 1 but in Colossians chapter 2 in those two verses, three verses 13, 14 and 15 you might want to turn them, turn to them with me Paul writes this beginning at verse 13 and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it so then first the victory so clearly described here what a victory this is this is not some hollow victory is it nor does this victory leave open a possibility that it might be overturned at some particular point that Satan might come back and have another go the the uh, passage that we looked at in Luke shows us that the stronger one completely overcomes and despoils uh, the, the one whom he conquers. The stronger one comes and takes away all the armour in which he trusted. And here is the disarming, if you like, that Paul mentions to the Colossians, as we have said here. Uh, in verse 13 he is made alive together with him has wiped out the handwriting of, that was against him and he has taken out of the way nailing it to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers what does it mean? well we all know what it means don't we? to disarm an enemy it means to take away or to remove absolutely anything and everything that may be used by the enemy to cause hurt, pain or suffering on his opponents. If you look back to the end of World War One or World War Two, we know that uh, the offending powers were completely disarmed. All means of conducting warfare were removed from them. And this is exactly what Jesus has done in his great victory over Satan. Satan has, ultimately, no more power. He has no more opportunity to hurt the people of God. See, Paul quotes Isaiah 25 when writing to the Corinthians. He says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in that passage that 
the fear and the power of the weapons of death and the grave have been completely neutralized by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who in his victory has led captivity itself a captive see the great thing that Satan had over people is death and the grave this was the thing people feared most they feared death there was no hope once this life was over but Jesus Christ now has taken away that power that Satan has over us there should be for the Christian no fear no power of death and the grave over us and so we look at this victory from that point of view and there's also an important uh, detail about this victory that we should not overlook in the disarming of our enemy Christ has not only taken away Satan's offensive weapons but he has also taken away his means of defence again what does disarming mean? you see throughout ages soldiers have gone into battle with some form of armour, some form of protection to protect their bodies uh, from the Romans who had sort of uh, shields and helmets through to, uh, perhaps even before that or later the knights of the realm on horseback completely clad in suits of tin and steel helmets and today in our modern warfare we have body armour bulletproof armour over the centuries men have used shields and breastplates and helmets to protect themselves an armour which Luke tells us is trusted by the soldier and indeed that's true even today put on their body armour and they trust that it's going to protect them from the bullets or whatever it is of their opponents but you see what we have here is that uh, as Christ has disarmed the devil so he has taken away those protections, that armour and Satan now is fully exposed to the power of Almighty God not only now has Satan no defensive power but he has no offensive power as well such is the complete and such is the comprehensive victory that Jesus Christ has won over the powers of evil and just perhaps for a moment we might pause and consider this victory we might ask ourselves why was Christ Jesus the son of God involved in this battle in which he is the victor we can ask the question was there any sin in Christ of which Satan could accuse him was there any fear of death or the grave that would allow Satan to have mastery over him no of course of course not he's involved in this battle not for his sake but he's involved in the battle for our sake us as we are weak sinful rebellious people but we are sin, sinful weak rebellious people that he has called himself as the hymn writer says there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only would unlock the gate of heaven and let us in and as the uh, scriptures also tell us the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep so yes Christ is involved on our behalf 
Yes, he is the good shepherd who lays down. He stands in our place to take the darts of the wicked one. And one final thought on this subject of the victory before we go on to look at the blessings. As much as Christ in his victory has disarmed the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, Paul tells us that in addition to this, he actually has armed his own people. And he has armed his own people with the spiritual armour of which Paul talks to the Ephesians. He has armed us with the helmet of salvation. He has armed us with the breastplate of righteousness. He has armed us with the shield of faith. He has armed us with the belt of truth and the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. So not only has the enemy been disarmed, but the Christian now is fully armed. And the gates of hell, we're told, will not prevail against or be able to resist the power of the gospel in the salvation and rescue of lost souls. What a wonderful victory this is. Now is the evil one overcome. Now is his power reduced. And he waits that great and final execution of the sentence upon him. So having these great truths of this eternal victory, in a sense, ringing in our ears, as it were, let's now, perhaps, as we move to conclusion, let's consider some of the blessings that come to us because of Christ's victory. Firstly, if we turn to verse 13 of chapter 1 that we read together, we read this, one of the blessings that come to us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Charles Wesley wrote, forgive me, there are a number of hymns I'm quoting here, but they're all so appropriate, aren't they? That sometimes I wish I could preach a sermon just by quoting hymn tunes, hymn words. Charles Wesley wrote this. Anybody know what I'm going to say? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light my chains fell off my heart was free I rose went forth and followed thee yes he has delivered us from the kingdom and the power of darkness in such a descriptive way and so we have a new master now don't we as Paul goes on in this verse and he has he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love I'm just going to take a moment to think about that word conveyed. Most of the other translations use the term translate, or he has transferred us, or he has just brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But the New King James here uses this amazing word, convey. And I think it adds to the great truth of the work that Christ has done. You see, the word convey paints a picture in our minds of moving from one place to another without the use of any effort on our power or use of our powers. A taxi, when called, will convey us to the airport. We get in the taxi, we ride along, we arrive at the airport. What effort have we used? None. An ambulance will convey us to the hospital. Perhaps either from home or from the scene of an accident. We arrive at our destination without effort 
on our part. So it is with both salvation and justification. The victory of Christ, and one of the great blessings of the victory of Christ, it takes away any need for any effort on our part. We know from the scriptures, don't we, that no effort, no good works, no amount of church going, no amount of pious living will gain us access to heaven and the acceptance of a holy God. But you see, we have no fear of this because this work has been completely and perfectly accomplished by Christ without any need for any effort on our part. And what wonderful thought this is. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We're taken from darkness into light. Christ's victory brings peace with God. It is peace with God to those who believe. Perhaps you're already thinking in your minds of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What a wonderful thought again this is as we consider the blessings arising from Christ's victory. You see, the removal of this condemnation is explained to us in this chapter 2 of Colossians. And if we look at verse 13 and the second part, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. As Paul was talking today, the slate is clean. There is nothing in our account the account has been completely cleared and transferred to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is now no barrier between us and God. I must confess I've never been quite sure whether it's right to say we are reconciled to God or God is reconciled to us. We hear both expressions of course. But when we think about it, God is the offended party here, isn't he? Our sins have separated us from a holy God and instead now of being on the receiving end of God's punishment and wrath, we now receive and experience that peace of God which passes all understanding, to use the phrase that Paul writes. The words of another hymn, this time the writer is John Newton. And he writes this as well. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Saviour's name. He has hushed the Lord's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. This is the great blessing of the victory of Christ. And we enter into these blessings as we come through grace and believing in him. And then finally, in terms of the blessings from Christ's victory, is a blessing to which Paul, in his writings, makes frequent reference. It's here again, in this passage of verse 13 again. And uh, he says this, I'll read the verse, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses this is a wonderful thought if we think about it we have been made alive to God we find references to this in Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians as well new life, new birth in many ways comes to us as a result of the victory of Jesus Christ and it's most important to consider this surely for Christians this should be a most loved and most treasured of truths he has made us alive once spiritually dead now spiritually alive we have a new life a new will a new purpose and that should be uh, to seek to serve him that we might be worthy of the great victory which he has granted to us just a couple of thoughts on this of being alive what are the results of being alive in Christ firstly to be able to enter into the great truths and the promises of scriptures to the world around to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins scriptures mean nothing do they they're myths and legends and uh, strange truths not to be believed they are in a sense um, made up stories about creation made up stories about the flood, made up stories about a man rising from the dead. It's all unacceptable, it's all unbelievable you know, to men and women in the world. But you see, Christians, once we have been made alive because of the victory of Christ, we can enter into these things. Think of the times we've read our scriptures and a verse comes to us and our hearts light up in a sense with the impact that perhaps a particular verse or a particular passage makes on us this is one of the great blessings of being alive and then briefly another um, fact if you like another blessing arising from being alive is that we have the assurance of an eternal hope this eternal hope is rooted and grounded and fixed only in Christ's victory, isn't it? And it is the hope of glory within us. He speaks about, Paul speaks about, doesn't he? If in this life only you are hoping God, you are of all men most miserable. Because he's saying that if you only hope, he's talking about the resurrection, if you only hope in Christ in this life, you have nothing to look forward to. We might just as be as the rest of the world around us. But Christians have that hope because Christ has been victorious and by the work of grace we have been made alive in him. We've been taken from the deadness of our trespasses and sins. And so finally, let me close with this few words of challenge by the Saviour himself. John 11 verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. These words, of course, were spoken uh, to Mary uh, or Martha, I can't remember exactly, um, on the event of Lazarus' death. And we know that Jesus would go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
But he ends this statement with a question that we should consider ourselves. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he ends by saying, do you believe this? And that was a challenge then and it's still a challenge today. How are we reflecting in our own Christian lives this wonderful victory over Satan? We should no longer be afraid of the power of the evil one because we believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that we have an eternal hope, that we have an eternal life. And therefore we should be, in that sense, sharing in that victory. There was an old chorus, wasn't there? On the victory side, on the victory side. No foe can haunt me, no fear can daunt me. On the victory side, with Christ within, the fight will win. On the victory side, may we live our lives uh, demonstrating that we are victorious in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.